<laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Happy Thursday, beautiful people. It's the weekend. <laughs> Where I live, it's the weekend. It's weekend eve. <laughs> I'm Babs Ross Ivy. This is Love, Bab, Love Talk. It's bright out. It's going to be 60 degrees. So let me tell you something. Sleep on this weather if you want to. You got until sundown to get in this good ass weather. Do you hear me? You have until sundown because once the sun goes down, the temperature will drop and we won't see this no more. So listen, I know some of y'all, particularly y'all of the whiter persuasion, get your sandals on, put your shorts on, your t-shirts on. This is your day. <laughs> Black folks, we not going to do that because we already know what time it is. We're like, oh, we're not going to be fooled by this one day of 60 weather, 60 degree weather, because tomorrow it'll be 20 and everybody will be sick up at the house. So no. <laughs> but white folks have at it. I'm telling you, I know by midday today, I'm going to see somebody, some white person in shorts and sandals. I know it. I know it as I know my name. Tell me. And if you see some sightings, hit me up tomorrow. Let me know what you saw. I'm going to be on the lookout. I'm going to count them down. So anyway, I just thought I'd put that out there for y'all. <laughs> I'm, I'm a I'm a noticer of racial things. <laughs> I'm a noticer. I notice racial things. <laughs> I notice similarities and I notice differences. And let me tell you, we are very different on weather <laughs> and how to behave in weather you you rest it rest assured baby you can bet your last dollar honey we are very different i'm a noticer of racial differences <laughs> and and weather is at the top of that list <laughs> so anyway um, let me, let me, let me talk about Long Wharf Theater. So this is the year of magical thinking <laughs> in more ways than one. So there's a play, we got a play that's sort of circulating in spaces and in homes. I'm not seeing it until December, but last night it kicked off at, um, I want to say Bergamos. I think it was at Bergamos last night. Uh, you know, the year of magical thinking is a one woman play based on the journals and novels uh, based on the journals, uh, based on the the story by uh, the journals and the story, personal story of Joan Didion, who, I, who I'm a fan of. I mean, she was one of those white women that was about it and, uh, and just turned things on its head. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I mean, she was a very interesting woman. But anyway, we have uh, Kathleen um, um, Chalfant uh, playing Didion. And uh, and there's a there is a Brian Slater recorded last night I guess, um, and uh, did a whole uh, critique of it. So so if you're interested, it's there, and uh, and it's sold out. So if you could scare up a ticket, uh, it runs through December 10th. Uh, it's sold out, but there is a wait list, and don't miss. See, listen. This whole concept that we're doing at Long Wharf Theater is what theater is about. And uh, the American th theater is changing. I mean, some things won't change and some things will remain the same, but overarchingly, it is changing. 
and uh and it's bringing theater closer and more intimate to people right uh, because the pandemic has taught us a lot but even before the pandemic gathering in the spaces that we were gathering in was becoming quite cumbersome it's still cumbersome uh and we will always gather i think but not for long periods of time and not for long seasons any of that kind of stuff um so anyway so if you want to see what we are really about i think you should see this this get on the wait list if you can and uh and try to see this thing y'all know people you know people you know people uh i'm seeing it in early december and i'm looking forward to it like i'm really looking forward to it uh you know so uh I'm just looking forward to it. So I just wanted to share that with you uh, because I knew I wasn't going to see it. One of the first ones to see it, uh, but I knew I was going to see it uh, later. So anyway, uh, there's a piece up on the neighborhood question on how to spend state cannabis cash. You know how they should spend that state cannabis cash? Every damn body that went to prison for selling pot, get some of it off the top. That's it. Particularly if you, I don't care if you served a day or 10 years. If you were selling pot, you should get some of that money. I, I, I That's how I feel. I don't want to hear nothing else. If you're not doing that, then this conversation is over. Seriously. I don't want to hear about, all oh, the community, the community, whatever. You know what was the community? The people that were selling pot and went to prison for it. That's how I feel. I don't want to, I don't want to hear nothing unless you support their retirement or their education or any of that first, then this, this whole conversation is, is a waste of my time. I mean that. And I'm looking forward to having a conversation with somebody about this, but this is where I, I just want to be upfront and tell you, if we are not taking care of people who have gone to prison for selling pot and we're not funding their support or education or whatever they need to be made whole, then I don't, I don't want to, everything else is just a false narrative as far as I'm concerned. I, you can say whatever you want. You could, you could, you could think I'm wrong or whatever. I don't, I don't care because they locked us up wholesale for pot and people got long sentences for, for marijuana long. So until they're ready to rectify that for me, in my mind, I, I don't I don't care about this money then. So yeah, because to me it just feels like if you give it to community and 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 at some point it probably will make its way to community, um, but it just feels like blood money to me. I just don't like it. I, if you don't take care of the people whose backs that this legislation was built on, I don't see the point. I don't talk to me about it. I don't want to hear nothing about it. Nothing. Nothing. If if folks who come out of prison from selling pot, who sold pot, who kids who have don't have this, who has this stuff on their records, if that stuff is not removed, if they don't have housing, if they don't have access to education, if we don't spend that money to take care of the people whose backs this legislation was written on, then then the hell with everybody. Because I I don't see the point. I I really don't see the point, and it's millions of dollars. I I just it just bothers me that. Everybody's like, oh, 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 I don't want to hear it. Until you do right by the people that went to jail for lots of time for this mess, then I, the, then you just, you just talking ish. And I don't care. I don't care. 
And, and I don't, you know, I know there's like, oh, this money will do whatever for the community. If you're not taking care of the very people, the very people who, who needed a way to su supplement their income, take care of family, take care of people, take care of community. If you're not willing to take care of them off the rip, then this is, this is just more white supremacy stuff to me. It's just more white supremacy. And and there's still people sitting in prison now uh, that that are uh, that so pot. So until they all turn to loose, till they're all made whole, till they're all, you know, back in community uh, with the supports that they need, then all this other stuff is just moot to me. You know, seriously. So I'll, I'll argue this point with anybody. And it's not even a long argument for me. I, I just see how see how those little two seconds I just said that? That's what I would say. And then people could come out their bag with a dog and pony show all they want about this, 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 this. I, I don't care because in my mind, you know what I see? Black and brown kids being marched to hell to jail. That's all I see. I can't I can't see anything else. All I see is kids being rounded up for selling pot go to jail for long sentences. So you know. I, I don't I don't want to hear nothing else. <laughs> so y'all could think this is a boom or whatever. I don't. It's just it's just sick. It's nasty to me. I don't like it. And I'm not saying we don't you know we don't do good with the money, but I said we start with taking care of the people whose backs this legislation was written on. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So. Uh, you know, anyway, anyway, that's the only, uh, that's the only thing I want to think about and talk about, you know, that's it. That's the only thing. So <sighs> that's the way of the world people. So anyway, uh, there's a piece up. There's Jimmy Joseph Lumpkin. Uh, 567 students and counting are homeless. I, I don't even know how we even fix our mouths to have homeless students. I, I, I hate the fact that we even have homeless people. I don't even know how we, how we even say that in this well-to-do society we live in. <laughs> It just it's just unconscionable to me. I I don't I just I refuse to understand why we have homelessness and hunger. I, I just it's just unconscionable to me. That's all I'm gonna say. So uh so they're trying to do what they can, I guess. You know. And, uh, and let me tell you something. I, I know something about this. My Both my sons were homeless out there, you know, for whatever reasons. And I, I don't got a judgment about that, you know. And I, I don't even feel bad about, you know, them sort of like, you know, getting out of my house, you know, because kids want their own independence. And, and, and I get that. And some kids can't live in spaces, right? They can't, their families are dysfunctional. They can't live in spaces. Or they just feel trapped or whatever. In the case of my children, my youngest son, Khalil, um, 
you know, he just he just had so many issues um, that made it made it impossible for him to live under the same roof with me. And although I raised him when he got to be of age, and uh, and I and I no longer had control over his movements, it became increasingly difficult to uh, have him in the same space. You know, meaning either I was going to kill him or he was going to kill me. That's it. So he had to get out. My son Gregory, you know, he had an allure and an attraction for the world out there, for the underbelly of the world. I don't know what that is. Uh, I dare say it might be rooted in attachment disorder uh, because, you know, kids that are adopted, you know, they've got competing stories. And when they have competing stories and they're not fully developed in their own selves, um, the, the competing stories can be overwhelming. And, and this sense of belonging where they don't belong becomes very attractive. That's, that's what I saw, you know. So he made choices that were not in his best interest. <laughs> and so uh, when you make choices that are not in your best interest, you have to go out into the world and make choices that are not in your best interest. So kids become homeless for all kinds of reasons. And it's not because parents don't care or they don't love their children, but sometimes kids are up against things that even families cannot handle. So we need to get, we need to separate out all the ways in which kids get homeless, right? Now, some kids are homeless because their parents are trifling. And I know that's not a medical term or a mental health term. That is a hood term from where I come from. Some parents are just trifling. And we got to own that too. Some parents are just trifling. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Some parents are just trifling and they should not have been parents, but such that it is, they were parents, they are parents. And so we got to figure out how to, how to support the trifling parents too, right? We got to learn, we got to figure that out. We can't throw away the trifling parents. We got to help them too. We got to help the parents who are overwhelmed and don't know how to, don't know how to maneuver these modern waters with kids, you know? And if parents don't have the tools to sort of be parents, and I, I'll be the first one to tell you, there were tools that I needed when I was raising children that I did not have because I was dealing with issues that I had no experience and no knowledge of. Go figure. <laughs> so you got to like learn on the fly. You know, sometimes it's too late to learn on the fly or sometimes it's not enough to learn on the fly. But kids, kids are homeless. So we have to sort of, we have to sort of uh, put all the issues on the table and see, you know, where we can make real inroads. I don't think it's enough to just say homeless kids. I think we got to say homeless kids from this and that. No, because when we do that, then we could look at where we could put more support. Now, if a kid is homeless because parents are trifling, I don't think you could untrifle those parents, but you might be able to find a situation for a kid with trifling parents while we try to mend relationships. If you got a kid who's homeless because there are no parents, that's a whole other animal. And then like parents moved away or they died or whatever, the whatever, whatever. Or kids age out of foster care and they got no place to go. 
And I feel like foster care ought to have some kind of more supportive structure to it. So when kids turn 18, they have until 24 to sort of have some housing and some supports and, and stuff like that. Because we already, I mean, we know that kids, the frontal lobe is not developed till they're like 24, 25. So if we know this on a scientific level and it's not disputed, then why are we turning kids loose at 18 from foster care with no support systems in place? That's all I'm saying. And I dare say, if you could, if you could find a way to support that, you know, whether it's micro housing or micro apartments or communal living so that they are not on these streets and that they can learn how to be in community because essentially we have to teach them how to be in community, you know, with each other and with community, larger overarching community. And, and, and I don't think that's anything, that's something that we absolutely can, can set up and teach now. Then I have to learn it on the fly. God, that's why leadership is so damn important. <laughs> leadership coupled with imagination, a coupled with <laughs> uh, magic. Do you know what I mean? Imagination and magic will go far because because when you have imagination and magic, what you're essentially saying is we could do anything. And we're not going to stop until we put everything on the table. That's, that's you know, I, that's how I feel about leadership. You know, imagination and magic is a wonderful combination for somebody to lead anything. City or, or nonprofit, TV station, anything. You know what I mean? Because then that opens the door for all kinds of, of possibilities, you know. And I think what happens in government is they shut down possibilities. Then it becomes about regimen, and then it becomes about documents, and then it becomes about you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, easy. And imagination requires uh, a leap of faith. Magic requires a leap of faith, you know. And that's not government. <laughs> government doesn't take leaps of faith which is unfortunate. But if you have a good leader, then if a leader says, we're going to take leaps of faith, then guess what happens? Then all the departments feel empowered to take leaps of faith. And here's the thing. They're not going to take gigantic leaps of faith, but where they saw a problem before, they might see a possibility of a solution. Isn't that, doesn't that seem better? then, well, we can't do that. <laughs> Doesn't it seem better to say, well, let's give this a try, or we shall see, or let's see. This is why I love artists in spaces. This is why I think artists should be on boards and places because they come with a level of imagination and creativity that sort of lacks in everyday practical matters uh, because people uh, in 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 administrative roles have forgotten that they are the stuff of dreams. And so when you forget that, you 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 have a very cynical view of the world and the possibilities become uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, we can't do that. 
or people are not nice or people are not good. You know, when you when you when you stack the deck with all the cons, <laughs> then they become so high like a like a fence that you can't see over for all the pros and possibilities. See what I'm saying? So if you if you start with tending to possibilities and inviting possibilities, it, it's infectious. It spills over. It spills over. So I, I just believe we, we always have all the tools that we need to solve all the problems. We just don't have the will, the ingenuity, the magic, innovation, uh, uh, and heart. And it takes courage to be imaginative and uh, magical. It just does. So, so I, so I, I feel that way about, you know, all the problems, particularly homelessness. I, I, I just cannot abide homelessness, particularly in kids. Why are kids homeless? Why are we allowing that? I, I feel the same way about hunger. Why are people hungry? I, I just don't understand it. <laughs> hey, Harry. <laughs> hey, Babs. <laughs> I'm thinking as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm like, you know, you and the Dalai Lama <laughs> should go on tour <laughs> and solve people's uh, issues. It's simple, positive outlook. <laughs> the positive outlook with the work, Harry. Do you know what I mean? You like you got to do the work. You you the, you know how you get a positive mind, Harry. You got to train your mind to be positive all the time. You gotta you gotta you gotta be able to sort of see where good things are happening. Because if you spend your time looking at everything bad, then that will be your experience at every turn. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm I'm ready for somebody to po look positively on me and. And take care of me for the rest of my life. <laughs> you, that's called a wife, Harry. Your wife looks positively on you. And no, she does take care of you. <laughs> financially, just take care of me for the rest of my life. I don't want to do anything anymore. <laughs> what does that mean, Harry? I'm just saying, you 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 make it sound so easy. Well, you know, there shouldn't be homeless. There shouldn't be this. There shouldn't be that. There shouldn't be homeless people. But it's unrealistic. Most, a lot of the homeless, I shouldn't say most, I have no idea. Um, a lot of the homeless people want to be homeless. So how do you solve that? You know, they want to be homeless. No, they don't want to be homeless, Harry. What they don't they want don't... to put in shelters. No, but, but th that's not the same thing as wanting to be homeless. What they don't want to be is in a shelter where they're being, they're being uh, uh, exploited and harmed and and have to deal with whatever goes on in shelters. They don't want that. Well, but the thing is, is that when you're in a situation where you're at the mercy of the system, that's what you get. But they don't have to be at the mercy of the system because guess who's the system? We are. So how, so, how do you tell? No. <laughs> well, we are the system, Harry. We, we're, we're the financial you know, like, It's like backing. when I heard Doug Hosline We're the financial say, backing of the system. When I heard Doug Hosline say one time, um, you're not in traffic. You are traffic. That that just changed how I saw the world immediately. That's like I'm, that because what it I does like, is I it like puts Doug. me. It puts me in. I'm not separate from the traffic. If I'm in traffic, I'm not separate from the traffic. I am the traffic. 
I like Doug, but that's nonsense. Harry, if you're in traffic, it's not other people. No, it's you're you part too. of traffic, but there's there are reasons for traffic, like shrinking a two-lane street to a one-lane street just so you have a bike path that is rarely used. So why so, don't you use the bike path? So there's people. So <laughs> you create traffic, and then you say, "Well, you're part of traffic." Yeah, well, I'm part of traffic. You created it for me. You are part of. You're not. In, you're not just in traffic. You're a part of traffic. Well, yeah, you're part of this world. So you're part of something. You're. you're yes. Part of, so when you're a part of this part world, of what is going on in Jupiter? Because we're part of this. The. But that's universe. right. So when you are part of something, you have a a responsibility and an obligation to solve for its success. And some people feel like working and paying your taxes is that. Okay. You know, so and when when services or or things get directed away from the person who's paying the taxes, you know, you feel kind of unappreciated. But uh that's neither here nor there. <laughs> You you still drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee? No, you know why my my, uh -oh. my did poor they get wife, it right? My poor wife has the flu. Oh, oh shoot! So um, y'all didn't get flu shots. She got the flu shot and then got the flu. Oh, okay. And, oh, well, you know it's all kind of strains out there. Coincidence? Coincidence? I don't think so. She's the last few times she's gotten the flu shot, she's gotten the flu. Yeah, but it didn't kill her, so this means but that's neither here nor there. It means the we'll flu, flu shot, shot worked. <laughs> I got no flu shot this year. No flu. But oh, whatever. Be careful. I, oh, wait a minute. I shouldn't say that. It's still flu season. Yeah, be careful. You probably should get a shot. You still got comorbidities. Yeah. I, no, I, I took my pneumonia shot. That's good enough. Okay. <laughs> did, you get, did you get the latest uh, 19 shot? No, I, I haven't taken the last three boosters. I have the last three. I was looking at my card because I keep my card on me. I think I'm going to go and get the uh, fourth one before. I got to go I get a yellow fever shot for uh, Africa. Wait, wait, wait. What? I got to go get a yellow fever shot. You're going to Africa? Yeah, I'm going to Senegal in February for three weeks. And you didn't invite me? <laughs> Harry, you're always invited. <laughs> I know you didn't want to be away that long. Wait, so, so you're going to Senegal. You know, I have DNA from Senegal, by the way. Just uh, so well, you know. I'll, look, I'll look for your people. <laughs> look, just say, I, just whoever you bump into, say I said, hey. <laughs> like, come, come take a picture. I got, I got, I believe I know your cousin in, in New Yeah, Haiti. yeah. I'm... <laughs> but, you know. You know, I would love to actually go and uh, where my D follow my DNA, but there's so many places. It's like I'm I'm like crazy, just split up into so many. I think I'm part of this world, Babs. Really, you are, Harry. But you uh, are okay. I think I what you could do is, uh, you know, map out all the places you want to go and just start going. You know, it, let me see. I, where would I start? I would. I would have to start. Africa, work my way down. Hit Spain. 
unfortunately. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, I'd be all over the place. I'd be a world traveler. What do you call this? Uh, a world scholar. Yeah. Let's do it, Babs. I think we should. Well, I'm on my way, Harry. You got to catch up. <laughs> What's our budget for next year? <laughs> <laughs> We could do a show. We could do a show. We want want to follow our DNA journey and do a show where all our DNA goes. That'd be crazy. Oh, we would have a good, well, depending on where our DNA takes us. There's some places (laughs) we're not going. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) You know what? One of the places I'm really intrigued of is um, the Nordic area, which, you know, makes me think. I may be a Viking somehow. But do you like the cold? Yeah, actually, I like the cold. My bones don't like it, though. I'm too old for... Well, you know, it's not cold all the time. So you go in the time of the year where it's like spring, summer, right? Which is like two weeks of something. So (laughs) So if you get that two-week window. (laughs) And then I have, you know, my Jewish... Um, part is actually from the Ukrainian area, so. Well, that's that's not a. I would not. That's not uh, a good spot right that's now. That's not a good spot right now. Although some hotels might be open, Harry, but. Oh no! <laughs> there's vacancies all over the place. Now. I think there's. Been... <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you could just you could be like Ukraine adjacent. Like maybe you go to Poland. Maybe you go. To... <laughs> Go to Poland, just go to the border, step over for a yeah, second. Yeah, just like put your foot over, like, yeah, I was in I was in Ukraine for a hot minute. You know, maybe that's what you do. Yeah, so I mean it, it's it's interesting, but you know, I, I like your your view sometimes of being positive and thinking that hum, humanity is worth saving. <laughs> How are you <laughs> you said that like like you have a contrary opinion <laughs> you know i do have a contrary opinion then i look at my granddaughters and i go man we got to do something to save this place yeah don't you think that though i think yeah. that all the time yeah um <laughs> to, to change subjects real quick i wanted uh there was a story I had pulled up yesterday that I think. Oh get. yeah, was it a conspiracy story? It's not a conspiracy story, but it's a a story that went viral. This um, this young lady, um, was interviewing for a scholarship. Um, and she <laughs> she um, was offended because when she asked whether they um what services did they have for the what's it called it's time blindness what is that so she has she doesn't have the ability or she says she doesn't have the ability to grasp the concept of time so okay she can't be on time for her classes or for a job. Or... Oh boy. So what services do you have for a time blind person that's probably not gonna make it to class or because well, well when could she make it? Like I'm just trying to understand. Here's my 
my thing about it, right? So does that mean that you stay after class or stay after work because you have no no time? You know, you're you're blind to the fact that you gotta clock out. Or <laughs> I, I bet she clocks out on time if she has a job. I bet you that her time blindness she sees when she, when it's that eight hour shift and she's like, I'm punching out. Huh. Right. So that's not an overtime problem. She doesn't say, um, what services do you have when I'm overworked? No, she says, what services do you have when I can't make it on time? Huh. Well, isn't that isn't that what time clocks? Well, here's the thing. Right? She were made for. Right. Well, like, she's she's um actually she has a TikTok video where she's talking about how offended she is that they that people don't take her seriously about time time blindness, and um actually there is. It, it I'll is, tell you what, I, she wouldn't have been a good slave. <laughs> she would have been beat to death. No, but it's it's an actual thing. It's a um ADHD. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. So, but. So it means she doesn't have a good internal clock. Right. So, so but the thing just... is that she's doing this video on her phone, right? So she knows how to use the phone. So why doesn't she set a timer? Mm. Right? If you can't tell time, your your phone tells time. Your phone has an alarm system. I'm it's... reading this, Harry. It says time blindness is a common symptom of ADHD. Yeah. So that just means she's got a program up her phone or whatever whatever the device is to get her where she needs to go chosen to be a victim to it so it's like what can you do for me and that's this generation right the generation you want to save right now um (laughs) well you know i think you know but that's not a hard thing to do either harry because you know you know because sometimes when people are in the midst of these kinds of things it's not so much like some elaborate thing that needs to happen Right. It might be something as simply as saying, you know what, we hear that you have this issue and we will work with you to help solve this or to help you be a good student. That's it. If you're if you're interviewing with me for a position and you tell me you have time blindness, I go, can I see your phone? I just resolved your time issue. You're going to be on time every day because I set the alarm. I mean, first off, I have ADHD myself, and I know about that. I'll I'll work at all times of the day because what what I'm doing is more important than time sometimes, mm-hmm. right? So, but I've learned how. I mean, I'm a 55 year old man, so I've learned how to train myself to prioritize what's important instead of just yeah. running wild mentally so i think it's just that we got to teach these people these kids the, the that young lady um how to prioritize what's important in her life if if her feelings are the most important thing which is why what's wrong with this generation <laughs> um if their feelings are the most important thing in the world to them then they they're clueless they're well, I mean, like it or not, Harry, they're going to be the people that will be running the world. It's scary. So, so if we don't give them a foundation for understanding how to be in the world and how to solve for the things that come up for them, then we're 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 going to have problems. 
So we either have we all we either work toward the solutions at this moment or twenty years from now they'll be the one running the world. That's yeah, but no, but we, don't you think we're giving too much value to feelings these days to the young? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's too much value. But if if we have the capacity to say to someone, I hear this is what your challenge is, and we can, we can, we can meet that, we can meet you in hearing your challenge. Like I, I don't think it serves us to sort of say to dismiss whatever that is. I, I mean, you know. I, I have millennial kids and they get on my damn nerves. Like they are on my nerves, Harry, with with the mess that they say, right? Why they can't, why, why? But then, it, but then I realized, you know, a decade ago, 20 years ago, we had these same, people had these same problems, but they had nowhere to take them. So guess what happened? They were undercover with these feelings and we would see behaviors that nobody could understand. But now we now people are a little more freer to say, this is what this is what my issue is. And I think we could help. Listen, these kids get on my damn nerves. Let me tell you, they do. You know, I hear them talk about harm or whatever. I'm like my eyes roll in the back of my head. But at the same time, I love the fact that they can say, this is challenging for me. Yeah, you know, it's good that you've taught them to voice their opinion, voice their concerns. Although sometimes I don't like it. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? And and I found myself doing this the other day here at work, right? If I explain something three, four, five, six, seven times, and then you're back with the same questions, I would tell my kids, okay, I've reached the point where I don't care about your issue. Now you have to do what I say. You see? I hear you. And, and, I, and I found that I reached that point here the other day and I was like, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been so real, but at some point it's like, how many times can I explain the same thing over and over and over and over and over you know, and and that and each time trying to take account, take into account your feelings. <laughs> and at some point, I don't care. It's like let's move on and just do what I say, not what you feel. Right. So this is this is the thing, and that's a this young lady is a good example. She's not the only one. You you could go online and find a whole bunch of people crying about different issues. That are that are associated with feelings and not with yeah. the re reality of their life. That they have to show up to work on time. That they have to do this. You have to. You want to pay your bills? <laughs> oh no! But you should understand that it's hard. Yeah, for me. I feel you, Harry. But but I I, I think I think I mean I, I'm I'm not against what you're saying. I hear you. But I also think though. Um, I also think that we can we can tap into our humanity a little bit more. And then at what point do we stop calling them kids? What age? Well, I'm 60, so anything under 40. No, no, no. But I'm saying, when do we say, okay, accountability for you? You're 26. Your brain has fully formed. 
right? For women, what? It's like three years earlier, so four years earlier than a man, right? So, but for men, you're 26, that mush that was your brain is, is now fully stable. Now let's start making decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life as an adult. Mm-hmm. Right? Same thing for women. Well, a woman is like 22, right? So women are like maybe six years ahead of men most of the times. Six to eight years, I got to say. I mean, most most women are way that I, most women that I meet are so far ahead of men that it's incredible. But you do have a lot that also have been pampered and all of this stuff has have been catered to their whole life and don't know how to move forward from that. You know, at what point do you say, man, you're 24, 25 years old. Let's start being an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, thank mm-hmm. God my kids are both adults. This is like well, mine are getting there. And it's and it's been a slow boat to China. <laughs> I, I swear to God, I would beat the crap out of them, but <laughs> slow boat to China without with, with, and it's not a motorboat. It's not a motorboat. <laughs> and, and, and there's no paddles or oars. <laughs> it's just, it, just and no that sail. Stick. It's just that just, stick that you're dragging yourself. It's a stick. <laughs> and you're just like, oh my God, when are they gonna when is it gonna click? But then I rem- then I have to think about you know what I cannot measure them by the way that I do things in the world. I cannot measure them by no, it's a, it's a good other measuring people. Stick. It's a good I, measuring stick, but you know, so you so, know I don't. You know, so I try to have more TV. grace for them. I try to have more grace. Yeah, and and I don't expect my kids to be neurotic like me. Um, with certain things, I understand that you have to let some things go. Um, but the the kids these days just let everything go. <laughs> I mean, the pendulum will swing back, right? Because whoever comes up behind them will will be different, right? So, so it was. I mean, I you know, Harry, thirty yeah, years from now, I'll be long gone, right? Like I'll be yeah. 30, 40 well, years, so I'll be gone. I mean, it all depends. Me, it's it's relative. Only if I'm able to sustain myself, <laughs> do I want to be around in thirty years. But if I gotta be rolled around everywhere, I might not want to stick around. <sighs> Although you know, you you don't want to be put into a machine yet. But you know, no, not me. Maybe you know, maybe that's coming. Oh. In, with, in lieu of cemeteries, that robotic arm, Babs. <laughs> <laughs> All you have is two eyes and an arm. <laughs> in, in lieu, in lieu of, uh, in lieu of physical cemeteries, you get a cyber cemetery where you could just be on a on a oh, database. Man. You just, I know. I just thought of something, right? That's a million dollar idea, Babs. I know. I okay, know, so man. now people can visit your cemetery and have a com- a real conversation with you because they've. They've actually put your personality into the headstone. <laughs> and you go, hey, Babs, how you doing? How you doing? Oh, you look, you just a million dollar idea. I don't know who's going to steal it. Well, I, I wasn't thinking of a headstone. I was thinking more 
like a database kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, like, but at the headstone, right? So if, if ever they need that Babs advice, they could go over there, and and everything you've ever said is in there. <laughs> so your library just goes and give the you know that. It could be like a a pole cord headstone, right? Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Put some change in it. <laughs> But no, I I I imagine I imagine a, a a cyber cemetery, Harry, where you could just keep me on a data on a file. You log into the data cemetery, and uh, and a hologram of me would come up, and you could you could see me, and you could talk to me because AI will allow me to interact with you, and it would have all my properties. So it would it would be as if I never died. Well, right. Well, that could be, you know, hologram Babs. Yeah. They come with you anywhere. But It'll be I, like the new Barbie. Oof. Hologram ba Babs. I don't think my kids would want that. <laughs> I think they like a cyber cemetery. So if they feel, so if they want to ignore me, they can ignore me and, and not be judged. Or if they periodically once a year see me on the anniversary of my death or my birthday or something. Yes. No, I, I think I, I, I think that's the next wave, Harry. I think it that, is, and, but and you know, the, and then I'm your body up. will be uh, cremated or some old thing and used for, you know. Whatever. I'm more I'm more biblical, Babs. Let the dead bury themselves. Just leave me anywhere. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. <laughs> Let no. the dead bury themselves. I don't want to be left out in the elements, Harry. <laughs> what is this the this is the wild west. <laughs> Not that bad. You can, you know, cremate me, but you know, that that's it. Then don't worry about it. I ain't I mean, worried I mean, about I, I you. Think, I mean, I think we'll have to. I mean, we'll have to think about other ways in which we. Um, I feel like I'm sponsoring. Ourselves. I mean, I feel like Duncan is sponsoring us right now. So if you could send <laughs> us a check for for, for a cyber cemetery. <laughs> A cyber cemetery that people can like go to, and uh, at a beautiful place, Harry, in a beautiful setting, they could, uh, you know, walk in, uh, get the little disc or whatever or the codes, and then just pull my hologram up and say, you know, hey, how's it going? How you doing? You know, I miss you. Whatever, whatever it is, or I hate you, or whatever it is, and you know, I would respond and. A very programmed sort of way, because I'm dead. But you know, yeah, and and they could have like one day for me, right? Sarcastic contrarian day, and just go in with a topic, and I'll give you the opposite <laughs> of of whatever topic. Sarcastic no, contrarian. No one is coming to visit you, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> no one is trying to hear that. I'll take the other side of every topic. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> They'd be like, no, we're gonna we're gonna let Harry Jules rest in peace. Rest in power. So let me tell you about the next guest, Harry. They're musicians. The Jack Quartet. I I was listening to them this morning. I went to the YouTube and I listened to them this morning. Uh interesting group uh for quartet. Uh so they'll be only, on this morning. Only one of them 
are in, right? Are coming? Yeah, only one is coming. Uh, John Pickford Richards from the Jack Quartet. So, you know, they're going to be at the Schwartzman Center uh, in a couple of weeks. And they're going to be performing Catherine Lamb's uh, Divisio Spiralis. So I'm going to, you know, I guess the music is considered deep listening music, Harry. And uh, you have to hear it to sort of understand that, I guess. So they're coming on. He's coming on at uh, uh, 10, 15 to talk about, you know, their music and their style of music and what why they do what they do and why they're inspired to do what they do. So I'm looking forward to it. I've never, I didn't know, I didn't know this music prior to this. So, so this morning early, I was listening to it and I was like, okay, you know, uh, very interesting and innovative. So, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll pick, I guess I'll look at the person and see who it is. That, let me show you the little. I sent you a, the picture that they sent me. I pulled the picture up and then. You see it? Oh yeah, yeah, that's good. I don't know which like, one. Like I don't is, know uh, who is who. Who is who? You know? Yeah. I'm like, who's Jack? Yeah. Good. Anyway. Yeah, we're live. All right, so we'll be right back. You're listening to Love Vibes, Love Talk on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. And we'll be back. Someone to be there for you, to love you all night. 
I don't think you have to look no further. Because I'm right here. Tell me what kind of man would treat his woman so cold Treat you like you're nothing when you're worth more than gold Girl to me you're like a diamond, I love the way you shine A hundred million dollar treasure, I give the world to make you mine String of pearls right in your hand Make love on a beach of jet black sand Outside in the rain We can do it all night I'll touch all the places he would not And some he never knew would get you hot Nothing is forbidden when we touch Hi, this is Babs Rawls Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. Stop! I'll love you from the bottom. 
Our love Babs Love Talk on Babs Rolls Ivy. I'm delighted this morning because I get to talk to uh uh the fabulous and talented Jack Pickford Richards from Jack Quartet. So let me let me tell you, uh hailed by the New York Times as our leading new music foursome and described as expert in the most ferociously difficult modern scores by the New Yorker. The Jack Quartet is known for transformative, mind-broadening experiences and close listening. That's a lot. That's pretty impressive. Good morning, John. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. I spent I spent my early part of the morning, like six o'clock this morning, listening to all the music that y'all put out <laughs> six years ago, last week. You know, I was just listening to all the music, listening, so... So tell me about this story of the of the Jack Quartet. Yeah, um, you know, we're coming up on our 20th year together. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize it was 20 years. Yeah, it's been a while. And, um, you, we, you know, we met when we were in school together. And when we finished school, we just wanted to keep playing together. And we were really just driven by this, like, passion and desire to work with living composers, even though we had been trained with, like, older classical composers playing Bach and Mozart, Beethoven, um, but our real passion was was working with people who are alive today, and and that's what we've been doing for the last twenty years, just commissioning and collaborating with with living artists. Wow! So, all right, so you all are classically trained. You come together, and and was the intent to create your own runway for this kind of music? 
Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the the initial intent was really just um, what our passion was, what our, what like our, I, I don't want to say it was selfish, but it's just what we liked doing. Um, but I think as we kept doing it for, for more and more years, um, we started to feel kind of an importance around developing work by living artists, you know, because there's like this whole ecosystem where artists are, are uh, relevant to what's going on in our world today. Um, and then they're also needing to survive. And so we were trying to provide opportunities to artists um, while also pursuing our own interests in the music that they make. And, and so do you find, uh, John, that uh, modern music folks today that, that have a classical leaning, is, is, that a, is that a tough road? Is that, you know, are they not getting to play in the big, in the big houses and the symphonies and all of that? Like, what's the... What's the path for them? Yeah, classical music is a little interesting right now because there's a big question of how much engagement there is from audiences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, historically, there's been like a lot of support, um, institutional and private support for classical music. But I think a lot of people are questioning that, wondering, is this the music that needs that support? Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a crisis, but I think... Um, there's like the the model is changing. Um, it is hard out there for, you know, I play the viola and, you know, I think about how many violists um, enter the workforce each year, you know, like thousands of violists every year, but is there really a demand for that many violists? Um, so, so like the, it is, it's challenging to make money as a performing musician, but I think that there's like another side of it too, that it's just, really important for people to be interacting with the arts um whether it's professional or whether it makes them money or not um and so on in that sense i'm really glad there's thousands of violists entering the world every year um because i think that that musicians are thinking beautifully whether or not they're earning money doing so mm. so now you commission art do you all write your own pieces like do you all get in the room and say you know what here's a theme or here's a thought like what's the process like yeah um we we do we've, we've done a lot of creation together um sometimes we work with artists who get us to improvise together either completely freely on our own or sort of more in line with with their vision we've also worked with choreographers and people from the theater world um who get us involved in creating in ways that we didn't really expect to be making art and music. Um, we have a couple of like capital C composers in the quartet who write scores that we perform <laughs> and work with electronic music as well. Um, our One of our violinists, Chris in particular, um, writes pieces pretty frequently that are really gorgeous and beautiful. And we love to just program it. It feels like family. Um, and something else that we do in the quartet is we arrange um, like medieval and renaissance music that we think is kind of strange and peculiar and we arrange it for <laughs> string quartet since string quartets weren't really in existence back then what's cool about exploring really old music is that the composers back then were like lawless with their with the way they wrote music they were writing really strange harmonies and really complex rhythms um, and then later it sort of became more music became sort of more standardized and so looking back before that standardization, it's kind of like, in a way, kind of very similar to what we're doing now with experimental music today. And so, and so does that, 
is that part of the allure and the excitement of what you're doing to be able to turn classical music upside down to like create your own uh, boundless style? Because I mean, clearly you're rooted in classical music, right? Like a viola <laughs> yeah. and a violin and all the things, but but you're not playing traditional classical music. I mean, you're doing some really interesting things. Is that is that part of the allure of that? I think it is, yeah. Turn it upside down. Um, also just exploring really curious intentions by the composers. Like sometimes composers are really stretching what's possible on the instrument. And uh, we develop these techniques and new sounds that that weren't even dreamed of 50 years ago. Um, and so the challenge of that is really exciting to me as a performer. Some, sometimes being a performer kind of feels like being an athlete. Mm -hmm. um, that we're being pushed to to be our fastest and our our strongest, um, and then there's this other side of it where we're driven by this curiosity around like the sonic experience, and yeah, and I really lead with that, with that with that curiosity. So, um, who's your audience? Who are y'all playing music for? Like who? <laughs> and 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 do you find new audiences? Absolutely. Um, our audience tends to be different than a normal classical music audience, um, but it's not really like one thing. It's It depends what city we're in. We tour a lot. Um, and our audience is the one thing that's true with all of them is that they're curious. Um, they're sometimes they come from the visual art world. Uh, sometimes they're sometimes they do come from the classical world, although a lot of classical fans are scared of what we do because it's not classical really it's more experimental um there's a lot of crossover with just general experimental music uh and it's it's cool to see who comes out for it mm. Mm. yeah so so tell me about collaborations with people like do you do you get to do a lot of that like do, are there people out there that's like you know what i really want to mix it up with that jack quartet <laughs> <laughs> yeah ab absolutely um that comes in like lots in lots of different forms. Uh, sometimes artists will just give us a score that we play, and it's more or less finished. But what I I think I really prefer the most is when we develop things together with artists. Uh, one just popping into my mind right now is um, a dancer and visual artist named Elliot Reed, who we uh, came into contact with and commissioned a piece from, and you know there was never really a score and but we we spent months and months developing this piece together that we ultimately performed in Central Park uh for the audience was just whoever was coming through the park uh and it's cool to work with people who don't come from classical music because they're imagining what a string quartet can do without the burden of history on their mm. show. that's interesting that's yeah. very, 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 very. So can you teach, John, can you teach experimental? And and <laughs> is there a suspension of, of training to sort of teach experimental kind of music? Yeah, teaching experimental music is interesting because it kind of depends on the curiosity of the students or the people interested in studying. I, I primarily try to teach that curiosity. Uh, so even if I am coaching a string quartet playing Brahms, I'm trying to get them to think of it in a way that feels new and fresh and experimental. 
um, that the that we don't have to be bound by the rules of tradition and we can interpret this music by our interests today. Mm. So now when y'all get together, do y'all listen? Do you individually listen to other music? Like, I'm sure you must be, are you listening to Beyonce and then like, you know what? I could take that Beyonce tune and turn it upside down. Or are you listening to, uh, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones or, I mean, who, who are you listening to? Yeah, we have we have pretty wildly varying tastes within the quartet or interest, I should say. And I, I love that because we're constantly exposing each other to each other's interests. Um, like I spend a lot of time listening to like hard techno and like the long form aspect of that kind of electronic music is strangely similar to a lot of the, of the experimental classical music that we play, you know, that there's these small kernels of ideas that are sort of implanted into the music that unfold over long periods of time or possibly over hours. And, and actually, um, these like sort of systems that artists are using to create um, music in different genres are, are I'm finding more and more are strangely similar. Mm. And do you get to work across genres? Like, like does the quartet work with rock bands? Does the quartet work with jazz artists? Does the, I mean, I, I heard you talk about the dancer, but do you work with other musicians of a particular genre? Yeah, we, we have over the years worked with different people and, um, and various genres, especially um, genres that perform with live instruments. Um, it's a little easier for us to slip into a live instrument mode. Um, <clears throat> but I think that more and more we're, we're trying to bring people into what we do. Uh, there's some, there's like a difference of perspective when someone brings a quartet into their world. Sometimes it feels like maybe we're like a backup like a backup string section mm -hmm. um, and then I'm, I'm finding that if we find really collaborative uh, situations then both both sides develop something different than what they've been doing it's, it stretches us to be new kinds of artists mm. so talk to me about that you have a new cd out well you put out a new cd in 2022 called aggregate forms yeah and uh, and i was reading up on it and the um uh, I was reading up that uh, 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 um, that it uses uh, numbers and and all those kinds of things. I was listening to it this morning. So talk to me about this concept and this <laughs> particular type of music. Yeah, well, so the the composer we worked with for this album's name is Catherine Lamb, and mm -hmm. she is someone we became really fascinated with uh, before we m encountered her in real life. Um, and she goes by cat lamb. So like whenever we're t like communicating, we always just use the emojis, like the cat emoji and the lamb emoji. Um, um, she's really cool. She's from Washington state, but she's been living in Berlin for a long time. And yeah, we, we came across her music on SoundCloud and, uh, what was so immediately special about it to us was just the sonic beauty of it. And what she does is she, she, she writes music using, uh, ratios from the overtone series, um, which which is sometimes hard to talk about, but any kind of sound that we hear is vibrating um, in physics uh, using the overtone series. And that's where we derive a lot of our harmonies that we know and love and in the music we play. 
Um, but the higher you go in the overtone series, the more peculiar and unusual the harmonies get. And that's that's where we we really start to explore with with Kat's quartet um, harmonies that feel pure and natural in our in our ears and our hearts, um, but are quite unusual compared to the music we're used to listening to. Mm. And is it hard? Like, can you can you get to that with the strings? Like, oh my, it is so hard. It's like <laughs> it's very very challenging. But like I said before, that the challenge is what pushes us and drives us. Um, the part of what's hard about it is making it not sound hard, um, because the music itself is very expansive. It's it's extremely meditative and s- slow to unfold. Um, even though while I'm playing it, I feel very active and on edge the the um the sound of it is is very peaceful i find that the piece lasts um about an hour and a half or sometimes even longer if we really get into it um and it's special it's it's music i listen to and it transports me into a like a beautiful headspace i i uh over and over again i i keep hearing the term listening music which I thought all music was listening music, but this is a very specific term for a specific way to listen to music. Talk a little bit about that. Like, give us a little education. Yeah, I mean, there's this concept of deep listening. Um, yes. Yeah, there's uh, there's an artist who died recently named Pauline Oliveros, and she really created, she, well, I mean, she didn't create deep listening, but she really um, spread the concept around to a lot of people that, that there can be this is these are my words now but there could be I think sort of passive listening where you're just experiencing it but then deep listening where you're really hearing the vibrations where if you hear two notes you're hearing the relationship and the the vibrations between them and sometimes two notes just just only two notes can create more notes through what we call like difference tones or overtones um, you can imagine harmonies and a lot happens sonically in our ears. It's, it's really amazing um, once you start tuning your ears to these effects and sounds that just occur in the natural world. Wow, that is fascinating because everywhere I looked, um, y'all like are the leaders of deep, deep listening. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's always uh, talked about in in any uh, uh, article or critique of y'all. It's it's deep listening. I, I love that. What is that? Like what? Like do I have to like lean in? Like what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it does seem to go hand in hand with uh, meditation and sort of just slowing down in general. And I think we have always been into this way of listening, but I think really, I'm not sure if it's a coincidence or not that we got even deeper into it after the pandemic. I think everything did slow down during the lockdown and we it's it's like the medicine that we needed at that time was to stop playing fast notes all the time and scurrying from place to place we needed to just sit and and pay attention to what was going on Mm. and so you know everybody had their 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 way to survive the pandemic um y'all been together for 20 years how did y'all survive the pin did y'all continue to play like in in in, on zoom like how did you it was tricky i mean we were definitely like everyone else we just like didn't know how long it was gonna last and so like 
in retrospect, it, it seems like it, everything sort of worked out in terms of just like planning. But in the moment, I keep remembering that there was a sense that it's like we never knew when we were going to be together again. You know, like, was it going to be forever? Remember that feeling? Like, yeah, I do. I, I kind of forget about that now. But yeah, we all I mean, we all live in New York City. And um, I think there was some kind of like rule that you could have up to five people hanging out. I can't remember exactly, but we were pretty lucky in that sense that, you know, we didn't have to break any rules to, to be a quartet. And we would have these rehearsals and we were sitting so far apart from each other wearing masks. You know, I can't believe that we were really playing the kind of music we were playing um, that far apart from each other. Um, sometimes we would rehearse outside and yeah, it worked out. And I'm, I feel so fortunate that, um, like the government really stepped in for artists. I know that a lot of those programs during the pandemic were, you know, wrought with fraud and, um, but it worked, it worked well for us and a lot of artists I know. Yeah. And, uh, yes. It did. Yeah. I've never said that before the pandemic, you know, like the United States has always had a reputation for not supporting the arts very much. And everyone's always like, Oh, in Europe, the artists live with so much support. Um, but yeah, my my view has changed on that. I think, yeah, the government stepped up. Yeah, we did a lot of support. Uh, I I chair the Arts Council for Greater New Haven, and uh, and we took real leadership in making sure that uh, artists had support, and, and specifically BIPOC artists who you know uh, have a tougher time. And so and so uh, we worked with the city and the state to make sure that you know artists could pay their rent and you know, their lights stayed on and, you know, their insurance was upheld and, you know, and we learned a lot about the gigging economy. Like, you know, we learned some things that people didn't know about, you know, how artists create art, make art and sustain themselves on art. So, so in that sense, the pandemic was a, a learning lesson for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that, that you're involved with that. Yes. I, I love artists. So that's why I jumped at the chance to talk to you because this was a, a type of music that I was not familiar with. I mean, I've heard yoga music and all kinds of techno music and, and all of that, but I've never, I've never uh, had this experience. And so I'm excited by it. So you guys are going to be uh, uh, playing at the dome at the Schwarzman center. Have you been up there yet? I haven't. It's going to be my first time. Oh, it's such a great space. You're going to love it. It's cool, a beautiful cool. space. And I think it lends itself to this particular kind of music. It's going to, you know, I could be wrong, but I think you will dig the acoustics in that space. Good. Yeah, I'm excited. I've heard a lot of great things about it. So December December 1st from 730 to 930, y'all will be at the Dome. And uh, and it's free and open to the public, which is really nice. So people can come. And yeah. Can come and people can come. So you haven't been here yet. When are y'all coming? just earlier that day we'll come up from new york um we've been rehearsing we're getting ready for it and i can't wait for it oh my goodness well i think you'll i think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the by the space it's fancy yeah <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a nice way like it's a it's a very sophisticated fancy space <laughs> I'm like oh i, I kind of dig this yale this yeah pretty, pretty pretty nice so all right so so how often do y'all put out new music do you put out new music yeah, I mean, we we do make a lot of recordings because um, we work with so many different composers and artists. Um, I think we have 
around 50 albums out wow um, the last 20 years um yeah and it feels in in many ways we're we're not really driven by our recordings as much as we they seem to sort of like be a documentation of what we're doing live on stage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but yeah we're always we're always doing something new Never and so stopped. are you touring too like is this your is this your full-time avocation like this is it is now doing? yeah it, it it took a long time to get to this point but um yeah we're doing we're, we're doing it full-time i'm so grateful for it uh all these artists are driving us and like keeping us busy um, um we we just got off a big tour from europe working with john zorn who's this legendary artist um and yeah, I couldn't be happier. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm excited for you all to come. And uh, I think you'll like New Haven. Uh, have you ever been to New Haven before? I have, um, but it's been a really long time since the quartet has. Okay. Well, then it, it's changed a great deal, but it's still a, a wonderful walkable city. And uh, hopefully you'll have good weather so you can get out and enjoy a little bit uh, some of the sights and sounds. And make sure that they, you know, feed you outside of the campus. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you got to come on today, John. I, I really appreciate this conversation. And uh, and I look forward to uh, your visiting uh, New Haven and playing at the Dome. I think uh, people are in for a real treat with this music. I've been listening to it all morning. And I must say, uh, uh, it is quite a, it, it is a deliberate slow, slowing down. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't hurry. I have to sort of, when it's on, and I noticed that this morning, that I move slower, right? Like, mm -hmm. I move slower. So it's like, it's like, okay, this is this is good morning music to sort of ease into the, into the day. Yeah, let's slow it down. I love it. So, well, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you greatly. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good talking with you. Oh, it's good talking with you. Thank you so much. So and say hi to the other three. <laughs> no. Thank you so much, John Richards of the uh, Jack. Qu oh wait, wait before you go, why is it called the Jack Quartet? <laughs> yeah, when the four of us met, um, the founding members' names were John, Ari, Chris, and Kevin. It was just an acronym for our names. Oh, that is the coolest thing, and it worked out well. It's like the Gap Band. You know, you know the Gap Band. The Gap yeah, Band. sure. Yeah, Greenwood, Greenwood, Archer, and Pine. That's the streets that they lived on. Oh yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it's the same kind of vibe. So that's cool. I like knowing that little story, Jack. I like yeah. that the Jack Quartet. So, all right. I just didn't want you to go without without finding out the name. <laughs> Thank you so much, John Richards. Enjoy you. your uh, rest of your day and your weekend. You too. All right. All right. Okay, so if y'all want tickets, uh, it's up on the Facebook page. You can log in. Uh, it's open to the public and it's free. Uh, and if you've not been to the Dome at the Schwartzman Center, baby, get yourself there. It's a it's such a special space. It's a very special space. And uh, I don't know what it will look like before they took it over, but it's a very nice space. Um, before the Schwartzman took it over, I don't remember going up in there. Uh, but it's nice, and I've been up there for a couple of a couple of events, and it's swanky, and I think this quartet would do well uh, acoustically up there. So it'd be really nice. So get your tickets, uh, December first, seven thirty to nine thirty, 
Um, the dome is located on the third floor of the Yale Schwartzman Center, 168 Grove Street, New Haven. So, and uh, you can register. So you can either go to uh, schwartzman.yale.edu, you know, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z-M-A-N.yale.edu and go right to their to their page and register. Or you could uh, find this show somewhere on social media under uh, the New Haven Independent, uh, WNHH Radio, or Love Baths Love Talk page and uh, and find the link to register if you want to catch this show. So ex- experimental music is where is that, baby? Experimental music. So, uh, but I just wanted people to to know uh, that uh, I had them on today and uh, I enjoyed talking to him. So, you know, I like that. Okay, Harry, I, maybe we'll cut it short today. I don't know. What do we do? We, can we cut it short today? Can we just play some music? Maybe we could play out their music. If you find their music, um, play us out with their music. Um, it's a it's a very slowing down kind of music. So if you need a little respite from frenzy, this might be the music for you. I dug it this morning, and I eased into the day listening to uh, 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 a little a little bit of their music. So, all right, I'll be back tomorrow. Oh, you know who I'm talking to tomorrow? I'm excited, and I've been looking forward to this. I'm I'm talking to Ruthie. Uh, Ruthie Gilmore, civil rights activist and professor. So she'll be on tomorrow. So uh, don't miss that. But anyway, here's some Jack Quartet. I'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs>